Wow, that was cool. Thank you. Uh, it is so good to be here. Uh, over the years, I have grown to love Ryan very much. Uh, anytime I want to learn how to be a better dad, I just try to spend time with Ryan, let him speak into my life. I've gotten to know Rod over the past uh, couple of years. And uh, Mount Vernon Baptist Church, which is about a half hour north uh, west of here, uh, has known about Gospel Hope since uh, you began, and uh, it uh, just fills my heart with joy to see you guys here singing, loving God, uh, seeking not only to, to know God's Word, but apply God's Word to your daily lives, especially thinking today about uh, orphan and orphan care and what that might look like for you as an individual and what that might look for you as a church, church arguably with the best name ever, Gospel Hope, so much better than Mount Vernon Baptist Church. Gospel Hope. My church in college was Faith Center. I thought that was a good name, Center of Faith, uh, but I digress. Uh, I want to pray, and then I want to preach. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who gives life, that Christ is our cornerstone. Lord, we come recognizing that there might be people here who weren't even thinking about showing up at church and thinking about orphan care yet. Here they are. And so might all of our minds and all of our hearts be directed not simply to the reality of orphans, but to the reality of you, our God who adopts. May we marvel at you and at your work uh, today in a special way as we mine your word for the tremendous amounts of wealth and treasures there are about adoption. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the past decade, I have seen more efforts to encourage foster care and adoption in Christian communities. I think along the lines of what Keenan said a few moments ago, uh, it's one thing to say you are pro-life, and uh, believers in Christian communities have been advocating a pro-life message basically since 1973. But I'd say it's only been roughly in the last decade that we've seen uh, multiplicative efforts to lead churches to be more engaged in foster care and international uh, and local adoption. Books have been written, conferences have been organized, prayer at church ministries have begun. And as we try to drive our churches into orphan care and adoption ministry, we have run into a few speed bumps. For example, there's the danger of pitting rescuing children against restoring families. As Christians, we should pray and work for parents who need help raising their biological children so that they don't have to lose their biological children for their children's safety. Adoption is always bittersweet. Adoption exists because pain and trauma and tragedy and sin exist. So that's a danger when we think about foster care and adoption. There's also the danger of, of holding on to uh, adoption as sort of the highest Christian virtue. So there was a young mom in, 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 in my church, and she has two kids, and I realized in one conversation one Sunday afternoon that she and her husband were not able to have any more kids. I didn't know. I just, honestly, I sort of assumed they'd reach that, like, perfect American, you know, match, you know, got a wife, two kids, and they were done. And in reality, 
she couldn't have any more kids. I don't know why they couldn't have them, but they couldn't have any more kids. And as we were talking, I recognized that in her mind, she had been living with low-grade guilt basically for years because in her mind, like the larger your family, the godlier it was. And then if that large family also adopted, that was like extra, extra godly. And they had done neither. And so that was something she really needed to wrestle through and wrestle with. So I don't intend to hold up adoption as sort of the highest Christian virtue. I just don't think we see that in the Bible. I love adoption. I love foster care. The need is great. I'd love to see the church do a better job of meeting the need for parents to adopt children, but I don't want to guilt you into caring about orphans. If you are a Christian, I don't have to. If you're a believer, I don't presume you're all believers, but if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you, therefore I don't need to convince you to care about orphans. You know, that's a little bit like needing to convince you to drink water. I mean, you are spiritually alive. I know you I know you care. I know you want to get, live a godly life, and so I know you care about orphans. And I wish we didn't need to care. I don't want to get going without saying this as well. I wish kids didn't need to be adopted. I long for a world with no broken families, with no orphans, with no need for reunification, with no teenagers about to age out of the system, with no need for the termination of parental rights. But we live in a fallen world. And until Christ returns, that need will remain. And so adoption is necessary. But adoption is not natural. And perhaps one disconnect between our, our understanding, our Holy Spirit-given love for orphans, and the, 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 the disconnect between our own lives actually meeting that orphan need when you consider the, the hundreds of thousands of churches in America, perhaps that disconnect is rooted in this reality that adoption is, though it's necessary, it's not natural. There's nothing natural about bringing someone into your family who isn't originally from your family. That's not natural. And I think that's one reason why so many people don't sort of overcome that speed bump and organize their lives in such a way that they adopt themselves. And I'm convinced that the best way for me to nudge you in the direction of thinking more about orphan care is by teaching you about the biblical doctrine of adoption. What we do physically in adopting children is tied to what God has done spiritually in adopting us. And the more we know about spiritual adoption, now you may disagree with me, and that will make this an especially long sermon for you if you do. But the more we know about spiritual adoption, the better equipped we will be to pray about, to think about, to advocate for, to engage in orphan care. So I'm convinced that's true. I got two things going for me, the Holy Spirit in you and the Word of God before me. So I'm putting those two things together and saying, if I preach to you on the biblical doctrine of adoption, God is going to do something good in your heart with that. So my sermon may seem a little more teachy than preachy, but what are you going to do? Like, I'm not your pastor. It is what it is. Like, don't invite me back. All right? Uh, I got three points. First, the biblical definition of adoption. The biblical definition of adoption. Second, the biblical story of adoption. 
story. And third, the biblical application of adoption. So number one, the biblical definition of adoption. This is going to be a very short point. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. There is a lot of Bible turning. Uh, even for me, there's a lot of Bible turning here today. So I don't know if you scroll through a Bible on your phone. I don't know if you've got the Bible embedded in an app in your, in, your, in your ear. I don't know how you get the Bible. There's a lot of turning today. So just be forewarned. Adoption is the gracious act of God wherein he makes justified sinners his beloved children. That's the definition. Adoption is the gracious act of God where he makes justified sinners his beloved, that means loved a lot, children. Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God is not obligated to adopt anyone. Paul says at the end of verse 4, in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Adoption is done out of God's love. God didn't have to do it. So, therefore, not having to do it, but choosing to do it anyway, God gets all the credit. Verse 6, it is to the praise of his glorious grace. He didn't have to do it. He did it, so we praise him. Now, Paul is quite clear that adoption is through Jesus Christ, verse 5, and in, so we got through Jesus and in the beloved, in Jesus and that means the, 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 the act of the Father <clears throat> adopting the church, adopting his people, the Father's work of adopting us cannot be separated from the work of Christ, the Son's work of justifying us. It is through Jesus that we are justified and in the Beloved, in Christ, that we are saved. Right? Justification that... God's work declaring us righteous. That's through Jesus. That's in Jesus. But that's not all. It is through Jesus and in the beloved that we are blessed with the gift of adoption. So every Christian is a son or daughter of God because of Christ's work on the cross. That's what Paul is very concisely saying. It's those in Christ. It's those in Christ justified by Christ's death and Christ's resurrection, right? It's, it's in that way that we become part of God's family. Right? So adoption is God the Father justifying sinners and making them a part of his beloved family. That's the biblical definition. All right, second, and much longer, the biblical story of adoption. All right. I think most of you know most of what I'm about to say. I think most of you could probably already summarize what I'm about to say before I even say it. I think eventually as I go through these steps, there's going to be a couple connections that you're probably not super aware of. And, uh, and that's that. I have seven steps to take. 
or seven statements to make in order to unpack the biblical story of adoption. This is what every Christian needs to know, and it's what every church needs to know if it is going to have a a biblical heart for the orphan and not merely a heart motivated by guilt uh, or pride. Okay, so step one, first, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Turn, if you would, to the opening chapter of the Gospel of Mark to the account of Jesus' baptism. So the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 1, verse 9. And uh, here we have, of course, the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now I want to focus on verse 11. A voice from heaven says to Jesus, You are my beloved Son. Now it's a simple statement, but there's a lot to notice there. Jesus is identified as the Son, and that means he has a Father. Here Jesus hears the Father's voice. God the Father is speaking to God the Son in the presence of God the Spirit. This is a great Trinity passage. And notice the Son is beloved. The Father loves the Son. And we can be sure that the Son loves the Father too. And Jesus did not all of a sudden become the Son. He has always been His Father's Son. Some have tried to argue that Jesus was adopted at this point in history, but that's not true at all. In John 17, 24, Jesus says to His Father, You loved Me before the foundation of the world. In other words, the Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father. Before there was time, that was taking place. And because all of the members of the Trinity were in perfect harmony, because they loved one another with a perfect love, they didn't need anything. They didn't need anyone to be happy. They were full of themselves. But, like, that's good. Like, if you're full of yourself, that's bad. But if you're God... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're just, by definition, full of yourself. And that's great. You're so full of your perfection that you don't need anything or anyone. The Father always being the Father, loving the Son. The Son always being the Son, loving the Father. None of us have a Father like this in earthly terms. Like No one has a human Father worthy of the kind of love that Jesus, the Son of God, gave God the Father. And when you hear of Jesus as the Son of God, again, do not think about a created being. Jesus took on flesh when he entered humanity, but he did not take on sonship. He has always been the Son. So, in the Trinity, there has always been family. Do you see kind of where this could potentially be going? There is always, and I say always, what does that mean when we're outside of time? i got no idea. I'm just saying reality has always included father and son. There's always been family. That's the first step. Jesus is the son of God. Number two, 
Adam was the Son of God. Turn to another gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 3. This chapter ends with the genealogy of Jesus. Now, it starts in verse 23, Luke 3, 23, with Jesus about 30 years of age, Luke says, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. I'd love to talk about that in some time. Then Joseph's line is traced all the way back to Adam in verse 28. Adam, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. And then notice what it says. Verse 28, Luke chapter 3, the Son of God. Now that's remarkable. Not merely that the genealogy ends with God, but that Adam, right, this is the first Adam, is described as God's Son. And don't confuse Adam's sonship with Jesus' sonship. As I said before, Jesus has always been the Son of his Father. That's an eternal sonship. Right? The Father did not make Jesus. He did not make Jesus his son. Jesus has always been the son. But God the Father made Adam. Right? There was a time when Adam did not exist. And when he made Adam, he made Adam well. Right? I have never experienced that kind of perfect creative power. But the Father did. And when he made Adam, he made Adam well. Adam was good. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, including Adam and Eve. And behold, it was very good. Right? Not very good, like the hawks are very good this year. Right? And not great. They're you know, very good, but not, not they, they, they were very good. Not like the hawks. Not even like the Washington Nationals. Right? They're great. No, very good here is without sin. That's how God made Adam and Eve. So try to get your mind around this. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are together, full of themselves in the best possible way for all eternity. And they're happy, perfectly happy. And then they decide to create. They make Adam, they make Eve, and Adam is God's son, his very good son, without sin. And God made Eve from Adam, but Eve is God's daughter, just as Adam is God's son. And they're both very good, and they're both without sin. And what do you have? You've got family, an earthly family. Can you imagine a family without sin? It is very difficult, because every experience you and I have had with family has been riddled by sin, various degrees, but all embedded in and meshed in saturated with sin. And not just like broken families, like your best, whatever the ideal human family is, there is sin there. And if you don't see that in those families that you idealize, you just haven't spent enough time with them. But this was for a moment, for a season, a family under God's good fatherly authority. Adam was family. And if sin had never invaded the world, we would have been born the family of God as well we would have been part of this global family if sin had never entered the world. Adam was the son of God. And that's the second step. Number three, after the fall, we went from being family of God to foe of God. We went from being family of God to being foe of God. Now, maybe you know what happened next. Adam did not live the way he should have lived. Instead of obeying his father the way every good son should, Adam chose to rebel. And in this one act of rebellion, 
there was cosmic significance. From Adam on, we were no longer born children of God. Remember, the Son of God, it said about Adam. But from Adam on, we were no longer born children of God. And this is a hard truth for many to accept. But Adam's sin became our sin. It taints everything. From now on, every child is born guilty, condemned, and in need of a Savior. Every single one. You could say that we were all born spiritual orphans. That's the point of Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's as if we were all there in the garden with Adam. It's hard to wrap our minds around this, but it explains so much to recognize how Adam's sin has tainted all of us and all of God's creation. I love, I love everything about Christianity. I want to be on record about that. I love everything about Christianity. There's not one thing about Christianity I don't love, but one thing I especially love is that Christianity explains the world I live in. There's no other worldview, no, no other religion that explains the world I live in better than Christianity. I see so much brokenness. I see so much hurt. I see families falling apart. I see abuse. I see homelessness. I see families torn in two. And I know why. I know why. And it's because of sin. Sin rears its ugly head because we are all born spiritual orphans. Orphans sound cute and cuddly. But make no mistake, a spiritual orphan is an enemy of God. Listen to how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.3. He says, we were by nature children of wrath. That's how far we fell. Adam and Eve began as children of God, but when sin entered the world, all of their kids and their kids' kids and their kids' kids' kids and their kids' 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 kids, right? Just keep going on to you, born children of wrath, right? Have you ever seen that little baby in The Incredibles? I don't know his name, but like he looks really cute and then like, you know, like a laser beam comes out of his eye and he kills you, right? Looks really cute and cuddly, a child of wrath, Dangerous. And so that's why I say we went from being the family of God to being the foe of God. And that's the third step. Number four, Israel was the adopted son of God. Now here is where it could get a little bit tricky, a little complicated. We need to think very carefully here. When Adam fell, all seemed lost. Every once in a while, a great man would rise up, a man like, like Noah. And, and at first, Noah seemed like he would be the savior of the world. He would be a, a, a man just like Adam. And, and in fact, God did use Noah in a sense to save the world. Noah built the ark. He saved a few people. Humanity kept on going. But it was pretty clear as soon as the rain stopped and the water subsided that Noah was no Adam. Right? Noah was even worse than Adam. And things, morally speaking, continue to go down the, the sinful road of the train wreck. So Noah was not the man we needed, but God didn't abandon humanity. He made a promise with a man by the name of Abram. And God told Abram in Genesis 12 that he would turn his descendants into a great nation, and through that nation, all the peoples of the world would be blessed. And that's a great promise. 
And many, many years went by, many generations, until eventually Abraham's descendants did in fact become a great nation, the nation of Israel, the people that God freed from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. And here's where it gets really interesting, because if you look at Exodus, Exodus chapter 4, Exodus, of course, being the second book of the Bible, Exodus 4 being a description of... uh, of uh, God calling Moses to go and be a prophet to these enslaved people. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, we find something really remarkable. In this paragraph, God describes how the relationship he has with this new nation, with his people, he's about to save them from Pharaoh. He describes the kind of relationship he's going to have. All right, Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. And look at this. Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Well, isn't that amazing? That God calls Israel his firstborn son. Now, the firstborn is the son that gets the biggest inheritance. The firstborn is the son that gets to become the king when the father died. The the rights of the firstborn are the best rights. And that's the position that God gives Israel. So here is our first taste of adoption in the Bible. Now, Israel, I know it's a little weird because Israel's not one person, it's a nation, but just go with it. Israel is the son of God. And Israel has all the rights and privileges of being the son of God. God will protect Israel. God will fight for Israel. God will allow Israel to refer to him as as their father. And just to be clear, God isn't doing this because Israel is great. Israel is not great. And if you read Exodus, you're going to scratch your head and think, God, why in the world did you choose Israel? I don't know why God adopted Israel. But here's what I do know based on Deuteronomy chapter 7 which you can look, on, look up on your own, I know that God loved them. Just like in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. I know that God chose Israel because he loved them. And that's the best I got. God's love is the only explanation for why God chose that little Middle Eastern people group to be, for this season, his special people. God is the great adopter. He made a family. And understanding that is central to understanding the Bible. If you don't understand that, I don't know how you're going to understand the Bible. God is the great adopter. And that was the fourth step. Number five, Israel refused to be the son that God wanted. Now, you need to turn to Hosea chapter 11. Right? Need is strong. You should. I will not do anything to you if you don't. But I would encourage you to find it. It's roughly in the middle. If you're in the middle, go right, and you're going to run into Hosea. All right? Happy to help. The story of Israel is a sad one. And it's actually a lot like the story of the first Adam. Though God was Israel's father, Israel rejected him. And they decided that they liked other fathers better. You know, it's like that dad who's got the PlayStation set up in his basement, and you've still got like an Atari. You don't even know what an Atari is, right? But you know what it's like to like that other family. Israel, though they'd been adopted by God, 
They liked other, other gods better. And Hosea is one of those prophets who devoted his life to speaking out against Israel when they rebelled against God because Hosea knew that God had adopted Israel and Hosea knew they'd turn their back on him. So look at Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Now this is God speaking through Hosea to the people. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Hosea knows what God did through Moses. God says through Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, right, the more they, son, come here, son, come here. The more they were called, the more they went away. And they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. And this is awkward. Because God made a promise that he would make Abraham's descendants into a great nation. Again, we saw in Exodus 4 how God adopted Israel. But now Israel is running away from God as fast as they possibly can. And if I was God, I know what I would do at this point. I'd begin again. I would start over. I would choose a different people. But God's not like me. Praise God. He is so gracious. Yes, God will punish Israel like a good father punishes a disobedient child, but God will not destroy Israel completely. Now, you probably know that. For you, that's kind of old hat. But that should shock us. When you read the Bible carefully and you see the depth of Israel's wickedness, it should shock you that God didn't start over. Look at Hosea chapter 11, verse 9. Again, this is God speaking. He says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, Ephraim being a synonym for Israel. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Now, of course, God did, in a sense, come in wrath. Eventually, Israel, after the days of Hosea, Israel fell to Assyria. Uh, eventually, Israel fell to Babylon. But, but God's anger, his wrath, never have the last word. And God is making it clear that his wrath is not going to be the last word. Hosea sees into the future, and he sees something amazing. Hosea sees that one day God is going to roar, and what's he going to do? He's going to build a family. Look at verse 10. They shall go after the Lord. He, the Lord, will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children, his children shall come home, trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. So this is God's promise that he's going to build a family. Yes, Israel refused to be the son God wanted them to be. But that will not stop God from loving and that will not stop God from acting. God will roar, and he's going he's gonna to roar, and his children are going to come rushing after him. It's kind of like Jesus says, you know, my, sh that my sheep hear my voice. Right? That's the shepherd speaking. But for Hosea, it's the lion roaring. And what's going to happen when he roars? There's going to be family. How will God build this family? And that takes us to the sixth step. Sixth, Jesus 
is the new and the perfect Israel. Jesus is the new and the perfect Israel. Please turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Jesus is a baby. Maybe he's a, maybe he's a very, very little boy. We don't sure, we're not sure exactly how old he is. Herod is uh, descending upon Bethlehem in his rage to kill uh, any of these little boys who might one day grow up and steal his crown. So being the, the despot that he is, he's going to send his soldiers and massacre uh, the little ones in Bethlehem. But thankfully, God is in charge, and God tells Joseph to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt. Look at verse 13. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now notice what Matthew says next. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, who is the son in Hosea 11.1? You don't want to answer publicly because you think that would be awkward, but the son, of course, is Israel. But who is the son in Matthew 2, 15? Jesus. Do you see what's going on? The Bible is beginning to tell us that, that Jesus is the, I don't know of, of a better way to say it, Jesus is the new Israel. And what's the point of this? The point is that, that Jesus is about to succeed everywhere that Israel failed. Right? In that sense, he's the new Israel. Think about what a, what a shipwreck of their faith Israel made year after year, generation after generation, making idols, bowing down to false gods. I mean, that's the, that's the resume of Israel. But now there's a new Israel on the scene. There's a new son on the scene. And everywhere that the previous Israel failed, the new Israel is to succeed. And you're thinking, like, where did you come up with that besides Hosea 11.1 1 and Matthew 2.15 and just putting them together? If you look at Matthew 4, where does the Spirit lead Jesus? In Matthew 4, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Can you think of any other people that were tempted in the wilderness? The people of Israel fleeing Egypt on their way to their promised land Everything should have been tulips and buttercups and butterflies, but instead they complain. God, there's no meat here. We've got nothing to eat. We want to go back to Egypt. They just complain and they grumble in the wilderness. Jesus is led into the wilderness. There's no food for him, but does Jesus complain? Does Jesus grumble? Does Jesus use his omnipotence as the Son of God to, to make a feast for him? No. Jesus humbly obeys his heavenly Father and patiently endures this trial that he has. Everywhere that Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. It's like the Holy Spirit through Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is a better son than, than Adam and a better son than Israel. Jesus is holy in every way. 
He's the new and better Israel. Jesus is truly the, the Son of God. Now, I love, again, I've already said it, I love the name of your church, Gospel Hope. Uh, every time you gather, you're reminded by your very name that the gospel is your only hope. That's cool. And just think about, like, well, think about what that gospel teaches, right? That, that God designed you to be a holy son or daughter of God. And that's how God designed you. That's God's intention for you is to be a holy son or daughter of God. But we all fail. And instead of living as children of God because of our indwelling sin with which we were born, because of our wicked desires, we were, in fact, children of wrath. We were by nature children of wrath. And for this, we deserve God's judgment. Jesus, on the other hand, never sinned. I know you've heard this before. We shouldn't ever get tired of saying it. Jesus never sinned. He lived a perfect life. He always honored and obeyed his heavenly Father. Jesus is perfect in every way. So that when Jesus went to the cross, he was the one man in all of human history who didn't deserve to go to the cross. Right? He's the one man who never deserved to suffer. He's the one man who never deserved to be punished. Like Adam deserved it. Abraham deserved it. Noah, before Abraham, deserved it. David, Saul, everybody, they all deserved it but not Jesus, and yet Jesus went to that cross, and because he is God in the flesh, when Jesus died, he was able to die in the place of everyone who would turn and trust in him, because Jesus is God. And when the Father raised his Son from the dead, he did it to prove that everything Jesus said was true, that Jesus has the power to conquer sin and death. In the shedding of his own blood, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God the Father. And here's where it gets so amazing. Jesus did it for us. He did it for everyone who would ever turn and trust in him. So the Lord is the lion of Hosea 11 10, the Lord is roaring, but where's he roaring from? He's roaring from the cross. He's crying out, calling his children home. But his children aren't merely Israelites in Assyria and Egypt. His children are all around the world. Sinners whom God has chosen to bring in, to call into his holy family, called into Jesus in love. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ in the beloved. So the, the Lord roars from the cross and sinners come and they come into Jesus who is the new and perfect Israel. And that was the sixth step. And here's where it all leads. Seventh, in Jesus Christ we and I'm speaking here to the church, if for whatever reason, because I don't like know who's a member and who's not here. I don't know who's visiting and who's not. I have no idea. So if you're new here, maybe you don't know the Lord. If you're not a Christian, maybe you know yourself to not be a Christian. In Jesus Christ, we, and here I'm speaking about the church, we are sons and daughters of God. That's what, that's what Jesus offers. Now, certainly, we need salvation from sin and God's wrath. So we offer salvation, and that's amazing. But I'm just saying it doesn't end there. It's not just that God saves the sinner from hell, as awesome as that is. 
He offers even more than that. In Jesus Christ, we are sons and daughters of God. And this is the last step in the biblical story of adoption. Through the gospel, sinners are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It doesn't stop with justification of the sinner is adopted. If you are a Christian, you are not a child of wrath. If you're a Christian, you are a child, a son, or a daughter of the creator of the universe. He is your father, your perfect father. One of my favorite passages is in the Gospel of Mark. If you go back to Mark chapter 10, Matthew, Mark, Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house. So again, to my non-Christian friends, this is Jesus' summary statement of what repentance looks like. You can't follow Jesus without giving something up, just period. And so Jesus is saying, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Verse 30, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And just to make it clear that he's not a prosperity gospel preacher, Jesus says, with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. Now, does anything strike you as strange about that passage? Again, I think Jesus is talking about the blessings of being part of a church, right? Your brothers and sisters at Gospel Hope are just, in fact, that. They are your brothers and your sisters. You've got, you've got mothers in the faith at Gospel Hope. You've got sons and daughters in the faith here. But did you notice that Jesus nowhere mentions fathers? He doesn't say you're going to get fathers. Now, in a sense, you know, I trust that you guys see Ryan and Rod, and I don't know who the other maybe spiritual men in the church are, but I trust you see them as a spiritual father in the faith, and I think that would be appropriate. But isn't it interesting? Like, did Jesus just forget? Oh, I meant fathers too. I don't think so. I think perfect Jesus, the Son of God, is making a profound theological point. When you are in Christ, God is is your father. In Christ, you have a family that no one can take away. In Christ, you have a seat at the family dining table that you'll never lose. In Christ, you have a bed. I mean, just thinking about orphan care and thinking about foster care and thinking about adoption, the statement that I'm about to make will, will profoundly affect you depending on your experience. In Christ, you have a bed in your father's house that no one will ever kick you out of. And there's nothing sweeter than that truth. And so it's why, it's why I call, and you can argue with me about this, but it's why I call adoption the sweetest doctrine. The sweetest. I mean, they're all good. I'm going to read you an old quote that makes this case. When we approach him, that's God the Father, and it's what you've done already this, this morning, when we approach him in the intensity of worship, 
we gather up all the sweetness involved in fatherhood and all of the tenderness wrapped up in, in sonship. And ladies, you're included here. Right? All the rights of a son, all the rights of the firstborn son, ladies, Christian ladies, that's yours. When calamities overcome us and troubles come in like a flood, we lift up our cry and stretch out our arms to God as a compassionate father. When the angel of death climbs in at the window of our homes and bears away the objects of our love, we find our dearest solace in reflecting upon the fatherly heart of God. When we look across the swelling flood, it is our Father's house on the light-covered hills beyond the stars which cheers us amid the crumbling of the earthly tabernacle. The biblical definition of adoption. The biblical story of adoption which culminates, in my opinion, with adoption being the sweetest doctrine in the Bible. And number three, the application of adoption. My wife and I came to Atlanta in 2008 with three little kids. As she said already, her pregnancies had been quite rough. Uh, they had gotten worse with each child. But God provided for us, and we knew that we had more room. I, um, I think my wife is godlier than I. Uh, for me, as I thought about adoption, it was just a little bit more pragmatic. Praise God, we've got the space. You know, there's, there's room. Like, there's room, there's a need, there's room, I'm sold. After I got over my own issues of pastoring a new church and getting through seminary. My wife, I think, being aware of the spiritual battle that is entailed in opening up your home to someone who's not originally part of your home is on her knees praying for 10 years. And perhaps that's why it was obvious to me, because my wife had been praying. Adoption had been at the back of our mind for years. I'd just taken the pastorate at Mount Vernon Baptist Church, and again, in all honesty, adoption was not on the forefront of my mind. I wanted to adjust to a new church, to all of its many challenges. Again, Dina praying, but not just praying. Dina prayed, but she did more than pray. She talked, she researched, and she was convinced that we needed to think more carefully about adoption. So she went to a conference back in 08 or 09 together for adoption. And I'll never forget what she said when she came back to tell me what she learned. She said there was no hard sell. There was no guilt. There was no manipulation. Just a call to marvel at our God who adopts. And I decided back then that if I was ever asked to speak on adoption, I would do the same thing. And that's my application for you. Marvel at our God who adopts. Because the moment the church stops marveling at our God who adopts, we will eventually stop adopting. Adoption is simply too difficult of a ministry if it's fueled by anything else other than the power and providence and love and mercy and grace of a God who did the extraordinary adopting spiritual orphans who were by nature children of wrath into his precious family. Not because he had to, but because God wanted to. Not because you deserved to be adopted, but because God loved you. So I long for the day when adoption is no more, no more broken families, no more sin, no more hurt. But until that day comes, I pray that God would justify and adopt more 
children of wrath and that our neighbors would be able to look into our churches and not just look into our churches, but actually look into our homes and our families and know that our God is an adopting God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the, certainly what I take to be the clear teaching of your Bible, that sonship, that adoption is really like a, a thread woven throughout all these 66 books of the Bible, beginning with a, a holy trinity, which is family, and ending in the new heavens and the new earth where brothers and sisters in Christ rejoice forever that you are our God, our Father. Lord, we've got so many titles in America that we love to use, judge and president, uh, celebrity. But there's nothing sweeter than the word Father. Help us to be a people affected by that deep and glorious truth that we might live out our faith in very practical ways. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.